Amen. First Corinthians chapter 15. Hallelujah. The 15th chapter of First Corinthians is sometimes called the resurrection chapter because in it the Apostle Paul is teaching or rather addressing, correcting the false teaching that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And it would seem that there were some people that were questioning that and he was basically, if you read through that chapter, you'll see that he was saying that if Christ did not rise again, then everything we're doing is, is pointless. He said, if the dead don't rise, then, then why do we baptize for the dead? And that verse of Scripture has been misinterpreted by some to believe that you can get baptized for dead relatives, and that's not at all what he was saying. But he was basically saying, if Jesus is dead, then why are we getting baptized in Jesus' name? What is the point? And if you read on in the rest of that chapter, the latter part of that chapter speaks about what will happen when the church shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and how this mortal shall put on immortality and this corruptible shall put on incorruption. And the verse that I want to take for my text tonight is verse 33, 1 Corinthians 15 and 33. Try not to go too hard because David's working hard interpreting and translating over there. And <laughs> I'll try. That's all I can promise. But 1 Corinthians 15 and 33 says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And in the context of this chapter, this verse seems a little bit out of place. Paul is teaching about, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead, and yes, the belief in the resurrection is central to our faith. And then this verse in the middle speaks about evil communications and good manners. And uh, it's possibly better understood if you look at the, the original, the Greek. Communications is not really talking about a conversation as such or people talking together, but it's better to be understood about people in relationships or people spending a considerable amount of time in one another's company. And manners here is not addressing whether or not we say please or thank you or excuse me or any of those other things that we think of as manners. But manners here has a much greater meaning in speaking about our morals or our character. And if you read some of the more modern translations, which... I do cautiously for reasons we can talk about another time. But a couple of the modern translations render this verse as, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And another one says, don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. So as a part of Paul's teaching against the false doctrine that says there is no resurrection, he warned the people in the church at Corinth that if they spent too much time with people that were of this persuasion, that it could corrupt their doctrine. It could corrupt what they believed and a, a belief and a doctrine that is foundational and fundamental to Christianity. The idea of being affected by the people whose company we keep is not new to society or to the Word of God. There are many expressions, some of you could add to this short list, but 
Some of you will be familiar with the expression that if you lie with a dog, you will get fleas. Or that you grow like the company that you keep. One person put it like this, if you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. The Word of God, which outranks all of those clever proverbs, says that he that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And there are many of our young people here, and if even all of us, not just our young people, if you have the opportunity to ever listen to a message by Brother Jerry Jones called Amnon Had a Friend, you will learn about the power of the company that we keep. And so tonight, for a little while, it was pointed out to me just yesterday, I believe it was, or Friday, that the last three Sunday mornings I've been a little long-winded, so I'm going to try and compensate for that tonight, and I won't preach for too long. But I want to preach from this thought about being in good company, in good company. Father, we thank you tonight for your presence and your people that are here. We just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts. Speak to us, Lord God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our world loves a success story. They love a champion. They love somebody who excels in a particular field. Somebody makes the headlines for a good reason. There's plenty of bad headlines, but we do love champions, people that achieve academic excellence or gold medals in Olympic Games or have the kind of musical or singing talent that, that takes your breath away and they become internationally famous. And there's something inspiring about people like that. And one of the reasons for that, I'm not an expert, but one of the reasons that we get excited about such achievements is that it really is only a very small percentage of society that reach those heights. And there's something in us that likes to try and identify with that. Uh, there's something about that success, but it's only a small percentage of society. If I was to say tonight, how many Olympic gold medalists do you know? There's probably not many, if any of us, that have ever met an Olympic gold medalist. How many people in your family graduated from prestigious institutions like Oxford or, or Cambridge or Harvard? And you may know somebody, but it's not, well, yeah, everybody has an uncle that went to Oxford. The, these are kind of the, at least... They are considered by their reputation to be the pinnacles of certain things. How many of us know somebody that's an international superstar in music or singing? Not many of us. Why? Because it's a small percentage of people that reach those heights. And you may say, well, I have a, my cousin's grandmother's niece was married to a guy that went to school with and you might be able to make a connection with somebody that's famous, but most of us don't necessarily know a lot of superstars because they're in a small group of people. Even the ancient world, when you read history, they were impressed with great philosophers and warriors. A lot of the Greek mythology talks about people performing great feats. And in many of the ancient cultures, talking about positions of, of, of privilege, the position of the firstborn in a family was considered to be prestigious, came with respect and many privileges. And uh, even things like physical appearance and stature can impress people very easily. We know that God looks on the heart and we're glad for that tonight. But I read recently that in the United States, 
I don't know who bothered to work out these statistics, but they say that 14.5% of all men in the U.S. are six foot tall or taller. 14.5%. Yet among the CEOs, the big bosses of Fortune 500 companies, the ones that are considered to be in the, the top 500 productive and profitable companies, of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 58% are, are, are six foot tall or taller. So 14.5% of the population is in that height range, but nearly 60% of CEOs are in that height range. It's an interesting point. And in fact, the article went on to say that only 10 men below five foot six have ever been Fortune 500 CEOs in history. So physical appearance has an impact. Sorry for those of you that aren't reaching the six foot level. The challenge for you to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company is statistically high. But that's just an interesting fact or statistic. This world, it is obvious to us, is still far too impressed by appearances. These outward things that don't last are still often the things that people are measured by. But even in the Old Testament, being the firstborn son was significant, as it was in other cultures of that time. Anything, in fact, that was firstborn, a person, an animal, was supposed to be dedicated unto the Lord. And it was a position of privilege, but it was also a position with a great weight of responsibility. Because if you were the firstborn son, if anything happened to the father of the family, the firstborn son became responsible for his family. Putting food on the table, taking care of the younger family members, taking care of mum if she was still around. And so it, it, it had privilege, but also had great responsibility. But again, only a small percentage of society got to be the firstborn son. Particularly in those days when people had 10, 12, 15 kids, there's still only one firstborn, no matter how big your family is. And in fact, the Lord in the scripture referred to Israel as his firstborn. In Exodus chapter 4, when the interactions with Pharaoh were taking place, the Lord said to Moses, Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. But it, we need to remember that it wasn't because of Israel's features or because of the fact that they were the strongest or the biggest or the best or the fastest. In fact, it was the opposite. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. It wasn't because the Lord said, All right, let's look at the nations of the world and, and let's see who's the richest, who has the highest uh, average IQ, who has the most talent, who has the biggest army. But rather, when God selected his people... He chose a nation that didn't really even register a whole lot. And even today, Israel, as far as population and land space goes, is not a particularly large nation. But God chose them. And there is a principle there that even though the principle of the firstborn was something that was a part of Israel and a part of their law, God showed time and time again that he can take the other brothers and sisters. See, I'm a firstborn, so I can say that. My little sister's not here. 
He can take the other brothers and sisters. He can take the lesser knowns. He can take the seemingly insignificant and he can make them good company or people that it's good to be around. And I'm not going to be exhaustive tonight, but to consider some examples from the Word of God. The very first family that we read about in the Scripture had two boys named Cain and Abel, and it was the younger brother that went on to serve the Lord, not the older brother. When we get to the time of Abraham, Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn son. Now, we know that he was not the child of promise, but he was still the firstborn son. But it was Isaac to whom the promises were made and to whom the covenants were given. And then when Isaac had children, he had twin boys, and even with twins, there's a firstborn. Jacob was chosen over Esau. The younger was chosen over the elder. And then if you follow the narrative through the Old Testament, you'll find that Jacob finds himself tricked into marrying more than one girl, or rather marrying the wrong girl to start with, and then working for another seven years to marry the right girl. And so he ends up, if you read that story without reading between the lines too much or being too unkind, the girl he wanted to marry was the attractive girl, the one that he fell in love with the first time he laid eyes on her. But the other girl that he was deceived into marrying first was her sister, was perhaps not at the same level of physical attractiveness. I'm being kind. But when you read the scripture, although Rachel was favored by Jacob, it is Leah that slowly comes to prominence. It is Leah's son Judah, not Rachel's children, but Leah's son Judah whom, whose lineage the Messiah came through. It is through the tribe of Judah, not through any of Rachel's children. Now, we know that Joseph was used as a deliverer, and he was a, a type of Christ, and he was the son of Rachel. But it's not through Joseph's lineage that Jesus came, but through Judas. And then even one more generation, Joseph, we know the story of Joseph in Egypt, of how God used him to deliver his father's family, and they came in, and he, he basically preserved the known world at the time from an incredible famine. And then as Jacob is, is coming to the very end of his life, and he's passing on, well, the scriptural term is probably blessings to his sons, but some of the things he said were pretty strong. But the time comes when Joseph comes in to see his father not long before he died, and Joseph brings in his two sons. Ephraim and Manasseh. That's how we know them from the scripture. But really it was Manasseh and Ephraim. Because Manasseh was the older son. And Ephraim was the younger. And the Bible very clearly shows us that because Jacob's sight was fading in his old age, that Joseph took his boys and deliberately steered Manasseh towards his father's right hand and Ephraim toward his father's left hand because the right hand was symbolic of the blessing of the older brother of the firstborn son. And Joseph, there's a reason it tells us that Joseph did that on purpose. But that old man, even though he couldn't see, he knew what he was doing. The Bible says he crossed his hands. And the right hand went to Ephraim's head. That's my left hand. The right hand went to Ephraim's head. And the left hand went to Manasseh's head. And the Bible says that Joseph was upset. He said, no, Dad, you've got it wrong. He's thinking, he said, old man's blind, can't see what he's doing. 
But he said, you've got the wrong son. He said, Manasseh is the oldest. But Jacob said, I know what I'm doing. This is how God wants it to be. And so again, even though there was a firstborn, it is the youngest son that God chose to bless and to anoint. Even in the life of Moses, Moses was not the firstborn. Aaron, his older brother, was the firstborn. Moses was the one that couldn't speak very well. It's, he either was just trying to make a really bad excuse or he had some kind of challenge with his speech and tried to do everything he could to get out of being the vessel God wanted him to be. But God chose the younger brother with the flaws rather than the older brother to be his vessel. This pattern is repeated again and again. We get to the book of Joshua and we read about the conquest of Jericho and we find that Rahab, whose employment seems to be prostitution or at least something of that nature is saved out of all the people in that city not only that but this woman of ill repute finds herself in the lineage of Jesus Christ people people seem to like it seems to be as people get a little bit older in years they like to look up their ancestry trouble with doing that is you might find out who you're related to and if if you go back multiple generations in Australia, there's a reasonably good chance you'll find some convicts somewhere. <laughs> and everyone wants to think, not in my family. But the facts are, we've all got interesting people in our heritage. And Rahab was not the first person you would think of, but God saw a way. Saw in her heart. She, the thing is, she, she didn't have a 12-week home Bible study. She didn't have to memorize scripture. But she said, there's something about you people and about you, God. Your God. If I will help you, will you promise to look after me and my family? Amen. You read on a little further. We get into the book of Judges and we read about a man named Gideon. Gideon was, we would say, the runt of the litter. When the angel came to him, he basically said, I come from a small tribe, my father's family is small, and I'm the smallest one in the family. He was doing everything he could to say, no, no, not me, I'm just, I'm the teeniest of the teeny. Have fun translating that, David, sorry. But, but he was doing everything that he could to get out of it. But God chose Gideon to be a deliverer, to lead deliverance. The young man Samuel was chosen over the sons of the high priests to become a prophet and a priest unto the Lord. David was chosen over all of his brothers. Wasn't even considered worthy to bring to the feast. Samuel came to town, came to Jesse's house, and he wanted off a sacrifice, and all the boys were there, and boy, they looked good. They were all in that six foot and over bracket. They were CEO potential. But the prophet looked at him and he was waiting for the Lord to say, that's the one. But he looked at the oldest brother, I think it was Eliab, got nothing. Looked at the next brother, got nothing. And worked his way down the line. And it sort of seemed that as they worked down the line, they sort of got a little bit smaller and a little bit scrawnier. Until finally they got down to the end and he's like, are there any more sons? He's oh, there's just one out looking after the sheep. And the prophet said, we don't eat until he comes in. You know, that's how you get things done in a hurry. You don't eat until we take care of this. If you've had kids, you know what that's about. 
But they, they bring David in. He comes running in. He might be a bit short of breath and red in the face. And there's something in the Spirit of God that registers with that prophet. And he says, this is the one. And the youngest, the one that wasn't even thought worthy of bringing up for lunch, has a horn of anointing oil poured over his head and becomes probably the greatest king that Israel ever saw. But even then, the story doesn't stop. In the process between anointing and throne, David goes through a lot of trouble. In fact, in one stage, he's living like a fugitive, being hunted by King Saul and his armies. And in 1 Samuel chapter 22, in verse 1, it says, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dullam. And when his brethren and his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. So his family went to him. But the next verse says, And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So David's already in a pretty tough state of affairs. He's running, he's hiding, he's trying to stay alive and stay one step ahead of Saul. And the new, somehow the word got out that he was in this particular area. And everybody with a problem, and everybody who was broke, and everybody who was bitter and twisted came and said, we want to stay with you. And David thought, just when I thought this day couldn't get worse. But from that group of people, you read on a little further in the scripture, I think it's toward the end of 1 Samuel, I haven't got it in my notes, but there is a list of mighty men that are listed as warriors that served with David that would have given their lives for him, that did things that you read and you think, really? You sure they're not making that up? One man fought off 800 other people? And that's sort of superhero type of territory. But out of this 400 bitter, bankrupt, cranky people, God produced an army or a force that not only kept David, but had a big part in getting him to becoming the king. I'm talking about in good company tonight. Amen. And then to drive the point home a little further, we get to the New Testament. We've sung about it tonight. Some of the kids showed us some of it this morning. The birth of Jesus Christ. God manifest in the flesh. The one true living God, the visible of the invisible, come to be our Savior. The greatest event the earth has ever known. No PR team. No Facebook page. No website. No advertising. In fact, he finds himself being born in Bethlehem. The prophet Micah said in the Old Testament, he said, Bethlehem, you are the little one among all the thousands of Judah. But he said, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. A city that we would never have probably ever heard about without the fact that Jesus was born there. And then the angels, who did the angels appear to? King, the generals, shepherds. I don't know who was running the PR campaign, but they needed to be sacked. Shepherds. 
smelly shepherds living with their animals. Read about it. They, they slept in the door of the sheepfold. They didn't smell too good. That was who the angels appeared to. But okay, he was born in that kind of obscurity. But then, then he, they moved and he grew up in Nazareth. And when it came time for him to start calling disciples and Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, we've met this Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It wasn't any better than Bethlehem. Again, it was another place that we would have never, ever heard of. How many towns in Israel can you name? Other than the ones most of us know from Christmas carols or from church. But without Jesus, you would have never heard of Bethlehem or Nazareth. And then from his team that he wanted to train and develop, he chose fishermen, tax collectors, people that weren't the famous, the the celebrities. You know, it's interesting when you read the scripture later on in the book of Acts, we learn about a man whose name was Saul of Tarsus, who later on became the apostle Paul. And the Bible says that he sat at the feet or he went to school under a rabbi named Gamaliel, who was very famous and his teaching and his school was very famous. But when you look it up and you find out his lifespan, he and his school were around when Jesus walked the earth. So Jesus didn't go to Gamaliel's school, sit down with Gamaliel and say, look, I need about a dozen guys. Who who are the best you've got? Can I see their grades? Can I see their study history? What their attendance has been like? Which one's showing the most potential? No, no, he didn't even, you don't even read that Jesus even knew about Gamaliel. He probably did, but, but no, no, he finds himself walking along the sea of Galilee. Turns to Peter and Andrew and then later on James and John and just says, follow me. Matthew or Levi, I think, was a tax collector. Very unpopular person. Because most of the time they were corrupt. They didn't just take tax, they skimmed off the top as well. And yet these are the people that Jesus chose. These are the people, this band of misfits. And I promise you, until they got the Holy Ghost, they were a band of misfits. But those people, the book of Acts records as being the ones that turned the world upside down. Not the firstborn, not the six foot and over, not the cream of the crop, not the gold medal winners, not the road scholars, not the ones that could sing and take your breath away. Ordinary people, messed up people, broken people, people with issues, people with problems, but they were good company because God got a hold of their lives. Thank you, Jesus. And so throughout the Scriptures, there are so many people that we preach about today that our Sunday school children learn about, but the reality is if we had have been there making the decisions, we wouldn't have picked them. And sad but true, they wouldn't have picked us. If you were given the task at any point in biblical history to choose a person to be the one that God was going to use to bring deliverance or to do whatever, most of the people we've mentioned wouldn't even get a look in. They wouldn't even, no, no, we don't that person. They've got a lot of problems that come, you know, from a strange family, whatever. No, no, no. 
But see, the Lord looked at those people that weren't necessarily the cream. I'm not saying that he doesn't use people that excel. I'm certainly not promoting mediocrity. Don't misunderstand me. I think in whatever we do for the Lord, we need to excel or work towards excelling. But we also have to understand that, that this is not about being perfect. This is not about us reaching a point where we are good enough for God to employ. Amen. In Matthew chapter, let's turn there, Matthew 22. I'm not going to be much longer. Matthew 22 and verse 8 says, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go you therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. You know, too often, and my wife mentioned this briefly this morning while she was leading worship, we come into church and we make the mistake of thinking that everybody here has always been sorted out. That everybody's, you know, great, there's no problems, their marriages are all perfect, their homes are in perfect harmony, they've got everything nicely lined up, and as the world likes to say, all their ducks are in a row. But the reality is, the reality is that that is not the case. That is not the case. The Bible makes it very clear to us. The Apostle Paul told the same church, Corinth, in the same epistle, he said, he said you need to understand that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, that, he said, don't be deceived. Fornicators or people that are involved in immoral sexual relationships, idolaters, people that worship strange gods, Adulterers, again, immorality by married people outside of marriage. Effeminate, homosexuality, not politically correct today, but that's the scripture. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of these things shall inherit the kingdom of God. And we all say, absolutely right. But see, then he said, because he said at the end of that verse is a, is a comma, not a full stop. Because at the end of that verse in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, And such were some of you. Found you like somebody to write to you and say, You know, God, God's not going to let any of these people come into the church, and you're one of them. But he said, Such were some of you. But you're washed. You're sanctified. In other words, you're set apart. You're justified. In other words, God looks at you and counts you innocent. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so when we come into this house and we look around and we think, well, that, that couple seem to have a really good marriage, and they ho hopefully they do. Or we see some people we seem to think have a lovely family, or maybe we see somebody, you know, that, that lady that plays the piano, she just seems such a nice lady, and that singers and Sunday school teachers and whatever else we might see. And that might be accurate, but you have to remember that it wasn't that long ago that it was a very different story and that we were broken and that we were in sin and that when we read through lists like this in the scripture 
we find statements there that prick our conscience because we recognise that's who I used to be. And such were some of you. And so I guess tonight really what the, the nucleus or the focus of what I'm trying to preach is if you're broken, if you do have heartache, if you've got addictions, if you've got things that you know you shouldn't have, you're in good company. You're in good company tonight because such were some of us. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Sisters Danker, if I could have you on the piano, please. Hallelujah. The book of Hebrews chapter 11, often called the faith chapter, lists a lot of these people we've talked about. Moses, Abraham, a lot of these folks. And it talks about what they did by faith. And then it ticks over into chapter 12. And chapter 12 begins with the statement, wherefore seeing you are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Referring back to the chapter before saying, look at all these examples. Broken people. Messed up people. People that failed God. People that disobeyed God. People that had all kinds of issues. He said, look at that cloud of witnesses or look at these examples and run the race. It's not about perfection, it's about grace and mercy. Can we excuse sin? No, no, we can't. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, the Bible says he went into the synagogue, he went to church, they gave him the scripture to read and he opened it up to the book of Isaiah. And it's written and recorded what he said in Luke 4. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me. Or he's, There's an empowering, there's a purpose, there's a mission. And he didn't say to seek out the one percenters, to look for the gold medalists and those that would be the cream of the crop. But he said to preach the, the opening of blind eyes, setting at liberty them that are bruised, setting the captives free. In another place he said, you know, the people that are healthy don't need the doctor. He said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so as we sing this old song in the presence of Jehovah, if you want to be good company, that doesn't mean perfect, but we need to recognize that if we've got brokenness, we're in good company. If you've got anxiety problems, if you don't know which way is up or down, and you don't know where your life is headed, and you feel like every decision you make seems to be a bad one, you're in good company. If you've got heartache that needs to be healed tonight, you're in good company. If your family's a mess and you don't see how it can possibly put back together again, you're in good company. Because there are stories in this place that would shock you if you knew them. They're not mine to tell. But we've all come the pathway of brokenness. We've all come down that road where we had things we didn't want other people to see. But in the house of God, you're in good company. Acts, the second chapter, tells us that the church was born on that day and people were filled with the Holy Ghost and for the first time and people questioned what was going on and Peter stood up with the other 11 disciples standing together with him, which was the first miracle the Holy Ghost did. They're all on the same page. And he began to tell them about Jesus and how he had died for them, and how really when you read it, it's not a message of comfort. It's a message that's designed to reach into their conscience because he said, you crucified him. 
What he got them to understand was their brokenness. Put him on the cross. But Peter wasn't saying, yours, not mine. He was really saying, our brokenness. Put him on the cross. And when they realized, they said, what do we need to do? And Peter said, you need to repent. You need to recognize that you're broken and want God to change that and turn away from that old lifestyle. You need to be baptized in Jesus' name and have your sins washed away. It's still the only name that takes sins away. And God will fill you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, just like he did that day. And in that day, there were thousands of people. And I don't know all of their testimonies, but I know they were broken people. Messed up, heartaches, without hope, but they were in good company. I'd ask you to bow your heads with me tonight as we begin to worship and sing this song. If you feel like you need to bring something to the Lord, if there's sin you need to make right, you need to bring that to Him. If there's heartache that you're finding is overwhelming, or there's situations you don't have answers for, you're in good company. But the healer is here. The Lord is here, and in His presence, in His presence, we can go from being such are we to such were some of you, and He can touch us. Hallelujah. This altar is open if you want to come and find